0: Greetings, this is Roger Kimball, the editor and publisher of The New Criterion. I'm speaking to you on a beautiful September afternoon, watching the sunlight fade away, wondering whether normality, which has fitfully been trying to reassert itself for some time, will finally succeed. The jury is out on that. But the jury is not out, I'm happy to say, on the October issue of The New Criterion, the second issue in our 40th anniversary year. I think you'll like it. First up is Anthony Daniels' contribution to our year-long series on Western civilization at the crossroads. In this piece, Tony examines the question of whether one has to be intelligent to be good. You won't want to miss that. Nor will you want to miss Joseph LeConte's essay on John Locke. Several of my friends have been beating up on John Locke recently, and I'm happy to say that Joseph LeConte has a sort of rescue mission here about John Locke. After all, he was enormously influential on the founders of this country, and I think you'll want to take a look at what he has to say about this seminal figure in American history, and indeed in the history of philosophy. I also want to mention pieces by Victor Davis Hanson on three important classicists that he studied with. Now, alas, no more. One of these classicists, Donald Kagan, was in fact a member of the board of the New Criterion. He died quite recently, and there is a beautiful and moving memorial piece about him by Paul Ray. You won't want to miss that either. I also think that our October issue may have more book reviews than any other issue of the magazine. Certainly it's chock-a-block with good book reviews that you won't want to miss, not to mention all of the other things, of course. Let me also now read to you my notes and comments. The first one is called Duchamp in Kabul. It is amusing to speculate about what Marcel Duchamp the Doyan of Dada, would have made of his appearance in 21st century Afghanistan. That happened as part of a cultural outreach program sponsored by the United States. In an article on The Spectator's website called, Did Gender Studies Lose Afghanistan? The writer known pseudonymously as Coburn unearthed a video from 2015 that depicts a fresh-faced, posh-sounding academic instructing a small group of Afghan men and women about the wonders of conceptual art. The locals sit around a table in a dimly lit room, exuding an air of puzzlement as their tutor shows slides and emits the usual art-speak patter. Exhibit A was Fountain, the unadorned urinal that Duchamp Impishly offered to the art world in 1917. Anyone know what this is? the docent asked, noting that she didn't necessarily expect the ladies to recognize it. One of the gents ventured toilet under his breath. The camera captured the look on the faces of some of the ladies, and it is priceless. What garbage, they must have been thinking. Why are we here? This was just after their instructor told them that Marcel Duchamp was a very important in Western capital A art, and then assured them that the exhibition of Fountain in an art gallery was a, quote, huge revolution. Well, those poor Afghans are even now learning about huge revolutions. Marcel Duchamp will not, we are confident, be on the menu. And besides, it's not at all clear that Duchamp would have agreed with the assessment of this cultural ambassadrix. I threw the bottle rack and the urinal into their faces as a challenge, Duchamp said some years later, and now they admire them for their aesthetic beauty. The they in question being the commissars of the art world, the ruminant herd of independent minds faithfully parroting the going clichés, lips firmly affixed to the teat dispensing the heady nectar of cash-saturated snobbery. The cash is important, and it turns out that the pursing lips of the State Department are just as eager for their nutrient nipple as are those of the art world, Even our jaded eyes opened wider at the news, also reported by Coburn, that the United States had over the years spent $787 million on gender programs in Afghanistan. And that figure, Coburn notes, substantially understates the actual cost, since gender goals were folded into practically every undertaking America made in the country. Huh. Talk about Dadaist performance art. Do-gooders established a, quote, national masculinity alliance so a few hundred Afghan men could talk about their gender roles and examine male attitudes that are harmful to women. We wonder if stoning women to death was discussed. We're confident that Duchamp would have enjoyed joining us as spectators at those powwows. Consciousness raising is never an easy task, however, and the gender crusaders, can we say crusaders, had their work cut out for them. For one thing, as Coburn notes, in neither the Dari nor the Pashto languages are there any words for gender per se. That makes sense, he observes, since the distinction between sex and gender was only invented by a sexually abusive child psychiatrist in the 1960s. Oh, dear. Quote, Things didn't improve from there. Under the U.S.'s guidance, Afghanistan's 2004 constitution set a 27% quota for women in the lower house, higher than the actual figure in America. Remarkably, this experiment in democracy Created a government few were willing to fight for, let alone die for. Police facilities included childcare f- facilities for working mothers, as though Afghanistan's medieval culture had the same needs as 1980s Minneapolis. The army set a goal of 10% female participation, which might make sense in a Marvel movie, but didn't to devout Muslims. End quote. Thank you, Coburn. Now that America's excellent 20-year, multi-trillion-dollar adventure in Afghanistan is at an end, except, of course, for the Americans left behind, it's worth sparing a thought for those er manning, if we may so put it, the many gender programs paid for by your tax dollars. The commentator Tucker Carlson shared a plaintive tweet by Dr. Bahar Jalali, historian, founder of the first gender studies program in Afghanistan, who, on August 30th, noted sadly that after eight and a half years teaching at the American University in Afghanistan and founding the first gender studies program, it was all being, quote, snatched away so needlessly. As Oscar Wilde said about Dickens' portrayal of the death of Little Nell in the old curiosity shop, One would have to have a heart of stone not to laugh, just a bit, at Dr. Jalali's predicament. There is also a serious side to this whole episode, however, which Carlson put his finger on when he raised the issue of cultural imperialism. It used to be that leftists derided Western countries, especially Britain and the United States, for that retrograde practice. But it turns out that the left is just fine with cultural imperialism so long as it is not traditional bourgeois values, but rather their subversion that is being exported. Thriftiness, piety, hard work, and traditional social and moral norms are bad things to teach. But feminism, gender studies, racial obsession, moral relativism, and attacks on the fabric of inherited morality bring it on. Put it down as reason 6,875 that our adventure in Afghanistan ended in failure. Crippling classics is our second note. We wonder if Dr. Jalali or her colleagues bringing enlightenment to the natives of Afghanistan subscribe to the Society for Classical Studies blog. As we've noted several times in the pages of the New Criterion, most recently with Victor Davis Hanson's essay Classical Patricide last month, the discipline of classics, at least in its academic instantiation, has become among the wokest of woke readouts. The Society for Classical Studies, which began life in the mid-19th century as the American Philological Association, is a poster child for the new anti-classical approach to classics. Its blog is edited by T.H.M. geller Goad, who teaches at Wake Forest, make that Woke Forest University, and specializes in Latin poetry, quote, especially the funny stuff. That, as it should be, because the blog of the Society for Classical Studies is an inadvertently comic repository of politically correct attitudinizing, dilating everywhere on such crimes as whiteness, a Geller-Goad specialty, patriarchy, and anything beginning with hetero. One page is devoted to a hysterical, and we definitely do not mean funny, mischaracterization of the protest at the Capitol last January. Though what possible connection that protest may have with the study of classics is never revealed. Another page provides exhaustive, not to say exhausting, advice about avoiding, quote, disability terminology when discussing the ancient world. The jollity here starts with a content warning that what follows includes disability slurs and ableist language, so caveat lector. It also includes some strange linguistic abnormalities, if we may so put it, but faulty diction is a small price to pay for woke rectitude. We learn, for example, that scholars aspiring to write for the blog should eschew the word normal and use non-disabled instead. Don't say that someone is insane or crazy or lunatic, but rather that he exhibits neurodiversity. Don't say that someone is mute or dumb, but that he is a, quote, person with mutism. Someone is going to have hours of fun updating the Gospels, purging them of all those cripples, lunatics, and deaf, dumb, and blind people whom Jesus cures. Is it okay to say he cures them? Isn't that invidious, suggesting as it does that it might be preferable not to be crippled, blind, mute, etc.? As a concrete example, the SCS contrasts two ways of describing the fact that Hephaestus was, in most accounts, born with a withered foot. Quote, Hephaestus suffered from a congenital deformity that limited his movement versus, quote, Hephaestus had a congenital mobility impairment. The first, they say, is bad because, quote, disability is given a negative valence from the start with words like suffered, deformity, and limited. It's too bad that they didn't get this memo to Homer and other Greeks who wrote about the great blacksmith. They could have altered their description of Hephaestus as ho-anphiguaeus, The one that, as the Little and Scott Greek lexicon tells us, halts in both feet, the lame one. The relevant part of the Greek compound is guios, which means, well, lame. But we're sure that can be changed in a future edition of the dictionary. The friend who sent us the link to the SCS blog did so not to call our attention to the filigree of politically correct virtue signaling, Rather, he alerted us to two announcements. First, that henceforth, anonymous or pseudonymous postings would be allowed on the blog. Naturally, this will make it much easier for disgruntled classicists to attack with impunity people they don't like. Second, that the, quote, SCS position on political content had been modified. You see what cards these people are. Previously, the editors wrote, they did not normally consider contributions that took a position on current political issues. Maybe someone called their attention to that contentious post about the protest at the Capitol. The editors had changed their minds. The, quote, tumult of the last several years, they wrote, had made their previous position untenable. Henceforth, Posts that take overt positions, though we suspect only certain positions will be welcome, will be permitted. What really caught our attention, however, was their concluding comment. The site's original position, the editor said, the position that frowned on introducing contemporary political concerns into a blog ostensibly devoted to the classics, denies the fact that our discipline is inherently political and has been since its founding. An apolitical stance, they wrote, is itself political. They offer this as a novel idea, though, of course, it is an idea that has been with us at least since the 1960s, when slogans like the personal is the political, and indeed that everything is always already political, to paraphrase Jacques Derrida, were repeated ad nauseum. The idea has a long genealogy, as anyone who has encountered encomia to German physics in the Germany of the 1930s, or socialist science, as distinct from the bourgeois variety in the Soviet Union from the same period, will know. That said, we want to end by agreeing that, in a sense, a, quote, a political stance is itself political. It is so in this sense. We found schools, universities, and other educational institutions in order to perpetuate knowledge and hand down certain civilizational values. One of those values is the affirmation that some things are worth pursuing for their own sake. The study of the ancient cultures of Greece and Rome, for example, and the languages that unlock their mysteries we decide to teach classics rather than political attitudinizing because we think classics is important. It is a foundational political commitment to say that such things are inherently valuable and that they transcend the vagaries of contemporary politics. That is the basic raison d'etre of liberal education. Here was something the great classicist and board member of The new criterion, Donald Kagan, eulogized later in this issue, understood. The Society for Classical Studies has hopped onto the rickety bandwagon, transporting that commitment to oblivion. Like other fatuous armchair revolutionaries, their members seem blissfully unaware that in repudiating the culture that formed them, they are also repudiating themselves. This is Roger Kimball signing off for The New Criterion. We'll see you next month.